Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today, Jeremy Lewis is back on the JOSPT Insights podcast to talk about that clinical enigma, the frozen shoulder. And we had so much to get through that it's a discussion in two parts. Today, in part one, we're focused on how you might approach assessing the painful and or stiff shoulder. And Professor Lewis shares how he approaches what might seem at least a complex clinical scenario and perhaps even a daunting prospect, especially given that there's so much that we're yet to understand about frozen shoulder. Questions like what causes frozen shoulder and even what's the prognosis? I'm sure Jeremy needs very little introduction to the JOSPT community. He is a professor of physiotherapy, works as a specialist in the UK's National Health Service, and has taught and published extensively on shoulder problems across the lifespan. Jeremy Lewis, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Hello to you. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm intrigued and really grateful for this opportunity because I remember learning about, well, what at Physio school in Australia was called adhesive capsulitis, and we can talk perhaps a little bit about what the right term for this thing, painful, stiff shoulder thing is. Is it adhesive capsulitis? Is it frozen shoulder? But essentially, we're talking about sore, stiff shoulders today. And I remember feeling intrigued, but also confused, probably in a roughly equal measure. And I still feel the same way about it today. Seems like I'm not the only one who's a bit confused and intrigued. So, and I'm so grateful that we have the benefit of learning from you today on frozen shoulders. So, let's start by talking about the terms briefly. So, adhesive capsulitis, frozen shoulder. How do we how do we talk about this problem? I'm also confused. So, this is clearly I don't think anyone really understands this condition, and we're all basing our knowledge on very small studies, inadequate studies, insufficient number of studies. To, so the to first person to you start using discussing this was a, a French doctor in the 1870s, Dr. Duplay, who, who described the pathology, the reason why people were getting this incredibly painful stiff shoulder as adhesions in the bursa. And that, that theory was around for about 50 years. And, and, and more recently, interestingly, um, the bursa is certainly coming back as a target for intervention and if, with the advent of x-rays i think a study in 1907 in the states uh, identified large, large pieces of calcification in the shoulder of people with very painful shoulders and the new theory became it was uh, calcification causing the pain and stiffness and so the bursal stick the bursal stick the sticky theory and the calcification theory were running parallel in different parts of the world to the 1930s were very famous uh, Boston orthopedic surgeon Codman uh, published a phenomenal book in 1934. In this book, he had a few pages, a chapter, a small chapter called The Frozen Shoulder, where he, he basically described that this was difficult to explain why it was happening. Possibly later on, people were talking about contractions in the capsule. And, and it was really interesting. He, he hospitalized four people in 1933 and basically tied them into elevation for about 20 hours a day, which must have been horrifically uncomfortable. And they were allowed up once a day to do some exercises. And they all said that um, after a week or two weeks of intervention, of this painful intervention, 
that they didn't need any more treatment. So I think it was a genius, but maybe not the most reflectable person. And he writes in his small chapter, without doubt, everyone gets better. And we've been saying that ever since, since the 1930s, based on these four people. And um, and then a few years after Codman, other people came on board and, and said, it's not a frozen shoulder, it's an adhesive capsulitis. They go back to the bursal sticking theory, but they talk about the capsule sticking to the humerus. And so these t- two competing theories the, the contraction contraction of the capsule and the adhesions of the capsule were running in parallel without any certainty to the 1970s where some histological studies um, were produced that suggested there may be contraction of the capsule and less evidence for adhesions. But somewhere in the 1970s or 80s, as best as I can work out, the two terms morphed together and we use them interchangeably now, but their origins were very different. And I think the acceptable term is frozen shoulder, but whether that's the right term or not, or whether that will stand the test of time is, is hard to know. I'm really glad you walk us through the history there because that kind of helps understand some of the targets for treatment and, and why we've ended up with some of the treatment approaches and strategies that we we can walk through a little bit later. Before we get there, though, let's talk a little bit about diagnosing and assessing a shoulder. And from what I remember from physio school, there were different stages. Some people might have a lot of stiffness and not much pain. Some people are going to have a very painful and stiff shoulder. Some people might just have pain. So let's talk a little bit about how one might diagnose or what might make you suspect frozen shoulder and then kind of direct your differential diagnosis there. So I don't think we can diagnose frozen shoulder. I think we can hypothesize, like most things in musculose, in in the world that I live in, I don't think I can ever be totally certain about a diagnosis. And usually what I would try and do is conceptualize, is this potentially not a shoulder? Is this an unstable shoulder? Is this a weak shoulder? Is this a stiff shoulder? And what are the interactions between them? But also surrounding that model, thinking about psychosocial factors, thinking about environmental factors, lifestyle factors, and all those play into this concept of frozen shoulder. In in China and Japan and Korea, a frozen shoulder is not called a frozen shoulder, it's called the 50-year-old shoulder. So when you're putting together a hypothesis that this present, you know, the person in front of you who's seeking care for this horribly painful shoulder that is so devoid of normal function, first of all, the, the patient is likely to be around the age of 50 for if they have a a primary or an idiopathic frozen shoulder. I don't believe you can even start to hypothesize it's a frozen shoulder until the patient's had these symptoms for a month or so because there's so much uncertainty which way this will go. So for me, uh, I would hypothesize it's this condition. The person's around 50 years of age, plus minus. They've had the condition for a month. There is at least a 50% reduction of external rotation actively and passively compared to the contralateral side if it's not symptomatic. Other movements will also be restricted actively and passively, but you must have external rotation. And there are some pathoanatomical reasons why that's I've suggested that. And then for me, the icing on the cake or the, 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 the gives me permission to say to the patient, based on our conversation, based on what you explained to me, based on the physical examination, it is likely, and that's as good as I ever get, it's likely you've got a frozen shoulder. And the final piece of that puzzle for me is that they have an X-ray and the X-ray doesn't reveal anything seriously, anything significant. Because every other stiff shoulder 
that's got restriction in external rotation, there'll be severe arthritis, there'll be osteosarcoma, there'll be a locked dislocation, there'll be avascular necrosis, there'll be something else going on. For me, uh, not everybody's in agreement with this statement, but for me it is, um, especially if I'm going to do some intervention, as I work in the United Kingdom, physiotherapists with training are allowed to do injections. So for me, that would be a mainstay management in the early stages. If I was going to do an intervention, then it would be um, certainly I want to have an X-ray. The other part of your question, and when you learned in physiotherapy school in Australia, as, as I did, that a lot of people have this three-stage model, four-stage model. I'm a lazy person. So for me, once you've established the likelihood, the clinically reasoned that this is likely to be a frozen shoulder, maybe we only need a two-stage model where we've got pain more than stiffness being the predominant problem. And the second final stage is stiffness more than pain. And we can try and apply treatments and research treatments for those two stages. What sort of balance do you strike here in terms of how do you find what's a good reassessment tool to know if your treatments are working here for when you're working with someone with a frozen shoulder? Is it really that you do need to focus on pain and range of motion or are you focused on other aspects of the person's function? I, I think the language that clinicians communicate in that we report our notes and that we communicate to other health professionals in is the language of impairment. And we've taken it upon ourselves to think that it's important to increase range of movement. And But I, I'm not in any way convinced at all that that's what's important for patients. The fact they've got an extra 30 degrees of a movement is probably very insignificant if they still can't tuck their shirt and reach to their bra, can't reach a shelf, they're still experiencing horrible pain when they're traveling on a bus or a train or a tram and it jerks, that, you know, the, the impairment measurements give us some guidance and help us maybe establish a hypothesis that this is what it's possible or likely the patient's experiencing, this frozen shoulder. And certainly it's important to measure in terms of, especially the external rotation, active and passive range, because without that, you can't make in my opinion, the hypothesis that it's a frozen shoulder. But I believe that, like most things, when the patient is not thinking about that problem anymore, it's no longer a problem for them. So a combination of patient-reported functional improvement or, or what they're not able to do, impairment for my records, but not focusing on impairment gains as being something to get really excited about. It's more what the patient is experiencing and are they still thinking about their frozen shoulder as much as they have been. You've got a fantastic book coming out shortly, early in 2022. Tell us a little bit about this book and where people can get their hands on this wonderful book. Okay, well, thank you very much, Claire, for that opportunity. It's something I've always wanted to do and I think it became one of my COVID coronavirus projects and um, it's not it's not my book. It's I, I actually wanted to have, for me, it was going to be the people I've learned from, the people who I've gained experience from. I wanted to put together a book about the shoulder where people that from all over the world who've contributed to my career were also part of that process. And, and that, for me, is the, the best thing about it. And, and the, the first chapter is the most important in some ways for me. 
because I wanted to start the book with the patient's voice. I wanted us all, whether we're physios or osteopaths or chiropractors, orthopedic surgeons or sports doctors, I wanted us all to sit and listen to the patients. And, and I just wanted us to, to make, the reason we're all in healthcare is we're trying to serve our communities. If we make the patient the focus of healthcare, we improve healthcare. And so that for me was a really important start to the book. And then it goes through a whole lot of different sections on disability and anatomy and assessment and all different sorts of managements. And, and I hope when the next edition comes around that some of the blank spaces in the book, the questions that have been raised, some of them will be a little bit, maybe we have more knowledge to fill it in. And I hope it becomes a work in progress for, for many years to come. And I thank all the people who contributed, including the patients. So thank you for allowing me to, to promote that. You can get it from a company called Handspring Publishers. And that's available online. And we will also share the link for folks who are looking for the book as well. I must say, I have had the good fortune, the privilege of seeing an advanced copy, and I absolutely commend it to the JOSPT audience. There's something in it, as you say, for everyone. And the thing that I love most, I think, is that it's a whole book on the shoulder. Usually when you get a a physiotherapy or a musculoskeletal rehab textbook or a physical therapy textbook or a sports medicine textbook, there's one chapter on the shoulder. And as we know, the shoulder is a very complex, beautifully complex joint. And you've put so much information into this whole textbook on the shoulder, as you say, anatomy, diagnosis, treatment, and this common thread running through around the patient and the patient's voice. And folks who are regular listeners to the JOSPT Insights podcast and regular readers of JOSPT will know that we're really focused on elevating the patient's voice and and centering the patient in what we do. That brings us to the end of part one of our chat with Professor Jeremy Lewis about the complex and still poorly understood science of frozen shoulders. I really hope today's given you some ideas about how you might approach assessing a painful and stiff shoulder and also how you might talk with patients to come to a decision together about the best way forwards. Do tune in next week when Jeremy's back to talk about the best treatments for frozen shoulder. We'll dive into what the best research says and how to translate that research to your clinical practice. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Mm